Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Benjamin Perry. Benjamin is a minister at Middle Church and an award-winning writer. They are also the author of the recently released book, Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. You can get connected with Benjamin and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Benjamin Perry with me, and Benjamin, you are a minister at Middle Church, which I have been to before. I absolutely <laughs> love Reverend Jackie Lewis. She is awesome, and uh, I think it was a, maybe like five or six years ago, I went to one of the Rev Love conferences, and it was unbelievable. So I have been in the building of the church that you minister at, uh, and you do so many cool things in the world, including you just recently published a book called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. It's unbelievable. It's also a very different kind of book than I typically uh, interview about. So I'm just really excited to chat more about crying. 
Usually I talk about like heady academic theology stuff or activist <laughs> stuff, which all of that's in here, but it's really centered around crying, which is just kind of unbelievable. But anyway, with all of that said, I've, I've said all the things I want to say about you, but I want to hear more from you about yourself. So who is Benjamin Perry to Benjamin Perry? Thanks so much for having me on, Mason. It's a, a delight to be uh, here with you. Sadly, our, our church building doesn't exist anymore because it burned down a couple of years ago. I know. Ago, so I found that, that out. Is it <laughs> is it purely online now? No. So we still meet in person in, in New York. We're actually at a, okay. a nearby temple that gave us space while uh, you know we, we re- rebuild. But uh, other than that, I... I live in Maine, actually. So I, I do three weeks Ooh. a month in Maine, and then I come down to New York for one week a month because I do a lot of our online and digital things. I do a lot of our queer theology at Middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Maine, I am in the middle of planting a, a big apple orchard. So that's like Ooh. my... It feels like <laughs> my, exactly my what off- you need to do when you're in Maine. Right. And especially when I work so much on the internet, like sometimes I just need to you know, actually put my hands to the ground. And I, I'm... I like your your introduction about you know, crying being sort of a different kind of, of theological approach. And I think part of what I'm trying to do with this book is invite people into a more serious consideration of crying than they've you know previously had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the weird analogy that I've been using is there's a new book out on the vagina. Um, it's really great sort of what's, comprehensive. What's the book called? I feel like I should know about this. I, I'm trying to remember the, the name off the top of my head. I'll... I'll... <laughs> I'll loop back. I feel back, like but, if um, I just t- if I Google right now a book about vaginas, yeah, you know, I don't you'll, know you'll if figure it will it out. lead yeah. me to the one you're thinking about. It will about. totally <laughs> feed you to that. But in the beginning of it, she talks about how it's shocking how little we know about the vagina, and the reason mm. for that is because for the very for the longest time, people didn't consider it worthy of serious study mm. because it's effeminized. Other than the reproductive purposes of the vagina, which are right. useful to patriarchy, which we know plenty about. All of right. the other pleasure, the, the basic anatomy, people were just like, well, I don't know, it's kind of mysterious. Who knows what it's, what's going on in there? Uh, because we don't th- take things that are effeminized to be worthy of serious consideration. And so while right. you know, crying has this deep history in you know, poetry, but it's a very mm-hmm. modest scientific history, and it's a very modest consideration in, in serious you know, theological capital T work. Uh, and I think that that's... Uh, betrays how little we care about it and how little we care for our emotional you know well-being in general right and i and i, I think that all of us could do well with a, a more serious examination of why we cry why we don't cry why we stop crying and it seems silly in particular for those of us who are christians because it's so much a part of scripture which is yeah. really funny to me uh before we dive into the book more i want to hear a little bit more about kind of yourself and as you wrote the book is this your first book by the way it is my first book it is Super your first excited. book so in the process of writing your very first book and i know you've written a lot of other things you went to seminary you did all the things like that so you've written before but in terms of your first published book is there anything you learned about yourself while you're writing the book where you're like wow did not know that about myself before that's great <laughs> I guess for me, it's it's more it, the process of learning to cry again, which was sort of the the mm. germ of that book, mm-hmm. um, and where that started was where I uncovered a lot about myself, and specifically how much I had, you know, how much trauma and pain I had buried. I think that in my early twenties was under the impression that I was like doing pretty good, mm. and then I had a seminary professor who invited us to sort of consider the last time we had cried, and I realized it was more than a decade ago. I like couldn't even remember. The last time I cried before mm. that moment. And all of a sudden, I realized how much I had become emotionally deadened without even noticing it. Mm. And so I think actually the process of writing the book, so that was you know 10 years ago now. 
But the whole process of writing the book and digging into all of that again was again this just this ex exploration of a lot of the parts of myself that I had covered the internalized homophobia that I had dealt with when I was a kid that even though now I'm out and do a lot of queer theology stuff, I, I can forget how much those kinds of shame and hurt and pain and things that we cover up are still salient even after we think we've overcome them. Mm, that like that mm -hmm. crying and for me that process of writing about crying was an invitation into embodiment to feel some of the things that we can safely tuck away in our heads. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that's sneaky about theology, about uh, sort of any kind of intellectual heady work is we can take things that we have you know, felt in our bodies and remove them to a place where it's safer, where we don't actually have to feel them. Right. And I think that that's sort of crying. And for me also, that writing process is moves it back from the head into the body again. And you're like, ooh, that still hurts. That's mm. still pretty tender. I, I want to hear a little bit more about your journey in crying. Obviously, for a lot of us, especially, we grow up as children. We cry a lot for lots of different reasons. Yeah. And some people remain pretty emotional, right? They, they remain you know, pretty, pretty easy criers. Uh, in fact, I was just talking uh, with one of my colleagues at the seminary I work at, and I was mentioning, I kind of joked with her. I'm like, you know, it does not take you to take much to, for you to cry. And we had graduation and I said, so make sure you save up enough tears for graduation. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, for so for someone like her, she, you know, it's pretty easy for her to cry. But for some of us, we just, it's like we lose this ability, right? Yeah. Just in the same way, uh, at some point, we kind of lose this like imaginative, playful ability. A lot of us do, uh, yeah. like that we had with you know, as kids, you know, we we could make Legos and we could do uh, make believe and all these different things. And at some point in that process, a lot of us kind of lose that ability. And I think one of those things is crying. And I'm curious for you, like, how did you journey back into being a crier? Were there practices? Where what like what was that journey like? And it's interesting, you started off by saying a lot of us, you know, cry early, like uh, easily early on. And the, the truth is all of us, <laughs> every yes. single one of us begin as, as habitual and frequent criers. Like that is the universal way that we communicate as infants. And even throughout, you know, much of our early childhood, even the, the kids where, you know, parents will be like, oh, he's so good. He, he never cries. Like kids still cry a lot. That, that threshold is, you know, intentionally inflated. And, and I think that, you know, why we end up crying less is really a product of uh, support of forces that suppress it. I don't think mm. that that's actually a natural process. I don't. I don't think we grow out of crying. Those of us who do, you know, end up crying less, or for a, for a long period of our lives, may stop crying entirely. I don't think that that's sort of a natural outgrowth of like, oh, you got older and you started doing differently. Right. I think that that's a product of social forces that uh, don't want us to feel that kind of way. I think a lot about the the quote that Bell Hooks writes in The Will to Change, where she says that the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of men is not violence against women, but violence against the emotional parts of the self. Mm. That we're we're asked as men to kill off the emotional parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know one of the misconceptions I think some people have about crying is that it it's a symptom of toxic masculinity that, that that extinguishing of crying is uh you know an outgrowth of toxic masculine behavior or ideas when actually i think that's that's the reverse i think that process of deadening ourselves of killing our own emotionality is part of what feeds toxic masculine behavior that that mm -hmm. you know because what is crying other in many parts in other many times other than a, a taking in of somebody else's pain that ability mm. to empathize, to to feel the world so deeply that we actually 
you know, it erupts out of our own bodies. That's that's a deep empathy process. And so I think that, you know, what you see in people who have been uh, conditioned over years to cry less and less, what we're really asking them to do is to feel less and less. Mm. The only way we can reliably stop ourselves from crying is to reliably stop ourselves from feeling deeply. So one of the kind of first moments of my life where I felt that conditioning or I even remember that conditioning around not feeling like I should be able to cry because I was a boy there was, and maybe you don't remember this at all. I don't know how much of a sports fan you were or not, but I was a big sports fan. And I remember there was this really famous basketball player named Adam Morrison in college. I think he played for Gonzaga. And it would have been like 2005, 2006. So like just over 15 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I think he was playing in like the final four in the NCAA tournament. And or may, it could have been even maybe the national championship, but his team lost in pretty dramatic fashion. And I don't think he had a particularly good game. And I remember like in those final seconds, as it became very obvious that the other team was going to win, he breaks down on the floor. And I remember the entire rest of the week, ESPN and every other sports journalist and you know all, all sports TV had to talk about Adam Morrison breaking down crying and people were calling him a crybaby and right like all the all the mm-hmm. words that you hear and I remember at that moment I was like oh I guess that that is like not an appropriate way to feel feel something especially something where you're really devastated or upset like like he yeah. was in that moment and I still like think back to that like I'm sure there was conditioning before then but that certainly was a moment that I still remember. I was probably maybe 10, 11 years old at the time. And I still remember thinking, oh, I should not behave that way because of what everybody's saying about Adam Morrison. Well, and that's the thing. It's interesting you bring that story up because I think for so many of us, uh, the messages we receive about crying aren't necessarily even messages we directly receive. I mm. was you know, really fortunate to grow up in a house with parents who never told me not to cry, who were very, you know, effusively embracing of my emotionality. And I grew up in a culture that, uh, you know, demonizes crying. And so I remember being like six or seven years old. And uh, one of, <laughs> I was playing soccer at recess, and one of the kids on our team started crying after we lost. And <laughs> the other kids on the team just like mercilessly bullied him. And that was not something mm. that I experienced, but I watched him that go through that. Right. And I was like, oh, we don't cry because if we yes. cry, we get bullied. And I was already mm-hmm. getting bullied for lots of other reasons. And I was like, I don't need to add one to the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, so many of us just we, we, we deaden our tears because we watch other people being mocked for them, whether it's in adults or college students or, uh, you know, another kid in our class. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing that we start to do is is we recognize that oftentimes crying communicates parts of ourselves to the world. Mm. For me, that was very much tied to my own, uh, you know, bisexuality and the the shame that I had wrapped up in that, and my inability to confront it for myself. Mm-hmm. I know I remember, you know, people making fun of people crying and saying, "Oh, that's gay," and mm. uh, <laughs> you know, as somebody who who was very clearly and keenly aware of some of the things that I was feeling. And didn't want to confront them even for myself, let alone reveal them to the world. I was like, "Oh, that's definitely something to hide. That's definitely something to cover up." Right. And I think that you know, 
that's a personal dimension, but that same desire to cover things up, to not let them be seen or heard, is I think also one of the the functions of crying that's that's very clear on a social level, and that's mm -hmm. why we have uh, you know social prohibitions against crying in the office. It's why we have you know tanks and tear gas deployed against Black Lives Matter protests. That mm. the the demonstration of grief tells other people that we are suffering. Mm. It makes people know that they're not alone. It takes things that uh, you know certain forces would prefer to remain buried, and it brings them out into the open. Mm -hmm. um, that crying does that in a physical way in our bodies, and it does it in a social way, interpersonally. Right. Uh, and it's very inconvenient for people who would like those things to stay buried. There is something about crying where it might be one of the best ways for, like, if you were the crier, it's one of the best ways for you to invite somebody into your life in that moment because you're yeah. clearly at maybe your most tender or even most joyous, but there is an invitation because of crying that happens. And I think part of the whole to toxic ma masculinity part of it is that let's say you see somebody as a man crying, you, if you want to like continue to perpetuate the toxic masculinity, you, what you end up doing is you don't want to receive that invitation. And yep. so you cut that off, right? You, or even you might mock that person or whatever, because you're so afraid of that invitation to be uh, emotionally connected to somebody in that moment. Well, and particularly for men, it also highlights the central lie at the at the center of patriarchy, which is that mm. somehow men are you know physiologically distinct. Like mm. the you know if you're if you're uh, you know a, a Christian who believes that you know the man should be the head of the household and like is, is chosen by God to lead the family, that well the reason that must be true is because there's something about men that is stronger, that is capable of leading, that is not vulnerable and weak, and so if you are crying. It is an admission that oh no actually I am I am just as vulnerable I'm just as tender I'm just as human as anybody else, mm -hmm. and so I think that that's partly why there is such such a visceral reaction, particularly from folks who are very invested in toxic masculine paradigms, at men in men who weep publicly in particular, because mm -hmm. they sense on us on a certain level that it threatens to give the game away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned right at the beginning that there hasn't been a ton of research on crying for these very reasons, the, the toxic yeah. masculinity reasons. But there has been some research on crying. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, how much research you did about crying uh, as you were writing the book. I know that there's a little bit in the one of the chapters about kind of the biology or physiology of crying. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about what is actually happening when we cry? What's happening in our bodies? And why do our bodies cry? Totally. Uh, so there's a couple different camps of, of you know thought as to why people cry. And I would say in addition to some of the social, like not considering crying to be uh, you know a topic worth of worthy of study, there's also some some research reasons why there hasn't been as much research. So for example, there's not a lot of diseases associated with tears and crying. So there's not like a clean, you know, exclamation uh, explanation for securing grant funding. Mm. Uh, there's also, it's a kind of a hard thing to study in a laboratory because the only way that they do it for the most part is they get a whole bunch of people together and they like show them Brian's song and they're like, I hope some of them cry. And then they, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like not even joking. Like that's the, the primary way that they go about doing crying <laughs> research is they just gather people together. They show them a sad movie and the ones who cry at the sad movie, that's the data that you get. 
So it's not an easy thing to study in a lab. Um, and it's a hard thing to sort of control if you're trying to do it outside of a laboratory. So there are sort of two competing theories about why we cry. Uh, and I, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. Um, one of the theories comes from a particular finding that uh, our emotional tears are actually chemically distinct from uh, the tears where you would cry when you're chopping an onion or if it's smoky. Mm. I have seen of... that before too. I've seen this research. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And so, so one of the, the, the guy who did the research, Dr. William Frey, uh, published this book called Crying the Mystery of Tears, in which he suggested that crying served an excretory function. And particularly the, the things that you notice in those emotional tears are higher concentrations of particular neurotransmitters that are associated with stress. And so his hypothesis was this is one of the ways that, that the brain is releasing stress is mm. by concentrating these neurotransmitters in the tears, in the tear duct, and releasing them through, uh, through the act of crying. Um, now, there is more uh, research. So not a lot of people have done the kinds of serious research that we need to do to either prove or disprove that theory. It's very much just sort of an open theory at this point. Right. Um, Ad Vingerhoetz is like the other big crying guy. If you're like doing, looking into the, the crying research, his name will pop up again and again. And he has a much more social theory of crying. Mm. This idea that, that crying is a, a visible signal to solicit assistance, that it uh, encourages social uh, cooperation between non-kin. Um, it's mm. like one of the ways that humans you know, expand our tribe, the way that we, uh, we solicit assistance from people around us. There are evolutionary psychologists who point out and they say, oh, well, actually crying, especially if you're doing it without you know, verbally crying out, is a way for me to communicate to you that I need assistance without making a sound that a predator might hear. So it's, mm. it's a way to, you know, just to s secure that kind of assistance. Um, and there are things, you know, when they do studies that they've found that like across cultures, people are more likely to provide assistance if they see somebody crying. If they see someone mm -hmm. crying, they're more likely to say, oh, that's a sad person than if the person just looks sad. Right. It, there is a social bond that you form in the engagement with somebody who's crying. And so because humans in particular are social creatures, it does yeah. seem to make sense that you would want to form more bonds. And that is one particular way to form a bond with somebody. Well, and that's like why one of the reasons why I, th I think so much of this research we know kind of in our bodies and we know it to be true because we are, are people who have cried or have you know been around other people crying. So even when they're like, ooh, you know, research hasn't been able to really demonstrably show that you feel closer to somebody after you cry with them. <laughs> like we, we've all been human. We've cried with somebody and we've been like, oh, wow, I feel different afterwards. Right. And totally. so I think, you know, the, the gap between what research has been able to demonstrably show in a lab and what we kind of know to be true as humans, I, I think uh, definitely exists. And I try, you know, in my book to both hold the, you know, the reality of like, this is what has been, you know, quantitatively shown in a laboratory setting with the, you know, truth that, you know, poets have been talking about how, you know, crying relieves grief for, you know, thousands of years. It's widely reported in lots and, you know, every, all these different popular science, either like we have this mass public delusion that crying helps attenuate grief, or perhaps we haven't had the, same, the right kind of studies that have been able to document it in a lab. Mm, and I tend mm -hmm. to think, uh, given the relative paucity of, you know, of research available, 
that it's probably more likely we just haven't been able to show it yet than you know the entirety of human history is somehow diluted. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We already have touched on this a little bit about why people stop crying. Yeah. But I'm thinking of systems like, again, toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. white supremacy, and even capitalism. And obviously yeah. all three of those are connected. But can you talk a little bit more about how these different systems end up creating a way in a person to feel like they shouldn't cry or that it's not appropriate to cry. Yeah, I'll start with with capitalism because I think it's an interesting place to look at sort of how crying exists when, within a frame. One of my favorite things that I was doing while uh, I was doing research for the book because I conducted all these different interviews with all sorts of folks about crying. And I spoke a lot with coworkers of my partner who used to work at a popular women's website that I won't uh, name by name, but if you do some digging, you could probably figure it out. And this was like the, the most toxic and abusive corporate environment. And it was one in which all of her coworkers talked about how they would cry frequently. And all of them did it privately. They would all, there was like an office stairwell that was known as like the place you go to cry. And so even as they were, you know, writing these articles about how, oh, it's so important to be emotionally expressive in the workforce. Oh, th this is the, the kind of, uh, you know, workplace that really helps people thrive. You know, one of the, her coworkers said something along the lines of like, it was like writing professional fan fiction because, you know, we're writing, oh, this, this is the kind of workplace that should exist. And it definitely wasn't the one that they were all living in. Mm. And yet, Almost all of them reported experiencing that like it was a personal failing, like they weren't tough enough to make it in the office, not that the office was this abusive place that was making everybody break down. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have, you know, it's unprofessional to cry at work is because if all of a sudden everybody's crying because they're so stressed out, they're breaking down. It's a sim like it's a signal like that's the kind of thing that, you know, provokes unionization. <laughs> You know, I think that if, if people see like, oh, my God, everybody around me is is breaking down and can't handle this incredibly un like they were supposed to be publishing, you know, 25 articles a day, which is a, a wildly unrealistic right. thing. And it means that you can't be doing good work. And it means you're constantly stressed out and you can't take lunches and you're working from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. You know, the first was, rule of union <laughs> busting is making sure no one cries. Yeah, no. I mean, but for real, though, like the, <laughs> if people actually know how much other people around them are suffering, it breaks that lie that like, oh, I'm just not strong enough to make it. And it shows that like the expectations of making it are wildly unrealistic. Um, and mm. so I, I think that, you know, it's a really quotidian way that we see crying suppressed, but one that I think is very revelatory. Then I would talk to other folks who, you know, are, are women of color in the workplace uh, who report the sort of double bind of not only am I, uh, you know, a woman and, and therefore, you know, crying is a particular kind of unprofessional, but even when I watch, you know, my, my white female colleagues cry, they're treated in a very different kind of way than my tears are received and the respectability politics of an office and workplace just, you know, make that an even deeper, uh, sort of structural violence against, you know, fully showing up and fully being human in the office. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, again, we're talking about just, you know, the workplace. But then you you know you uh, zoom out a little bit and you see the way that you know crying and grief in particular is suppressed across a culture, and it's it's very very clear. I mean, what is a Black Lives Matter protest if not a, an expression of grief? Right. Like yes, it's a protest, but it's also 
you know, people are saying this person we loved is dead and they shouldn't be. I know when I was doing the research for the book, I really loved talking with Kelly Brown Douglas. Mm. And she was talking about conversations that she had with Trayvon Martin's parents and how surprised mm. Trayvon Martin's father was that Sabrina Fulton's tears weren't received by the jury. That he really thought that when they saw Trayvon's mother crying, they would go, oh, this is somebody's son. Mm. And that didn't happen. And I think that the, the box that we have set up around, and, th and this, this runs very, very deep. If you, you know, go back and you read Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, he writes about how you know, uh, black people's grief isn't, isn't real grief. It's a simulacra of grief that looks like grief, but it's not really grief like we have grief. And I think you, know, you can see the reverberations of that very, very clearly in the way that we, we treat some people's tears as genuine and authentic and other people's tears as you know, histrionic or an overreaction or something to be cast aside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that if you live in that system for long enough where you're told again and again that your tears don't mean anything, then you, you start to ask why you're crying them in the first place. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is Jesus wept. It's, pretty, it's the easiest one to memorize too, which is great. Yep. What should we know about crying in the Bible? Obviously, there's Jesus, and maybe you want to talk about Jesus crying, uh, but to. there's also plenty of other places in the Bible where people are crying and weeping. So can you talk a little bit more about Jesus crying in the Bible and also the other examples of crying happening in the Bible? Yeah. So I love, I love Jesus crying over Lazarus because he cries before he resurrects Lazarus, and I think that's mm. really important. Jesus gets to get, he gets there and Lazarus has been dead for 4 days. And the first thing that Jesus does is he sits with Mary and Martha in their grief. He doesn't try to fix it. He doesn't try to make it better. He doesn't say don't worry, I'm here to change it all. Mm. He sits down and he cries with his friends. And I think particularly as we're thinking about ways that we should show up for other people in their grief, it's very easy to quickly go into the mode of making it better. Um, one of the things that I loved learning in CBE that has really stuck with me is I had a supervisor who told me that when you're sitting with somebody who's crying, usually very often we put our hand on their back and we rub in a circle. Like that's mm. like 
that's what we do when we're, when we're sitting with somebody who's crying. And what this communicates is my own anxiety about you crying. It says, I, like, please stop crying. <laughs> um, when actually, if you just sit there and put your hand on their back and, and you just leave it still, that communicates a very different thing that like, I'm here, mm. I'm present with you, I see you crying, you, you know, you're not alone. And so what I see Jesus doing in that story is just, is, is being real and human with Mary and Martha before we get the, you know, Lazarus come out and, uh, you know, a nice, a good biblical mummy. And I love that. The other place that Jesus, that Jesus cries, and I think we oftentimes forget this, is when he cries over Jerusalem in Luke. And so in those two stories, we have Jesus crying in a very interpersonal way. And then we also have Jesus crying over, over a people. Mm. And I, I love that sort of, that spectrum of Jesus's weeping that we have both the very, very personal, tender, I'm crying for a friend, and the sort of broader, I'm crying because of what I know is going to happen, mm-hmm. because of the, this social pain and tragedy. And I love just the breadth of that humanity. I think crying at its heart is a deeply human act. Mm-hmm. And I, I love seeing that breadth of humanity in Jesus. One of my other favorite stories to talk about with crying is Joseph. Because Joseph cries a few different times in over the course of uh, Genesis, it's not recorded, but I imagine Joseph probably cried when, you know, they were stripped and beaten and thrown in a well, um, mm-hmm. or you know, sold to enslavers, and that's that's the call story. You know, G- Joseph is, you know, called as a prophet in his own blood and tears. But then fast forward, the the two times that we that it is documented that Joseph cries is the first time when the brothers come and they ask for assistance. And Joseph uh, leaves the room and starts crying before he comes back and he says, okay, uh, you know, go back and get your, your brother Benjamin. And he starts testing his brothers to see, you know, have they really changed? You have this private moment where Joseph is just moving through the grief that he has experienced seeing his brothers. And I think one of the things that we see again and again when, when it comes to tears is that tears often precede moments of transformation. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the things you asked, you know, what was different when I was writing the book. I think when I first started writing the book, I oftentimes saw tears as like a product, a place we get to that, you know, we go through a whole lot of stuff and, and then, then we cry. cry. When yeah. actually now I mostly see tears as sort of stepping through a doorway, but they're mm-hmm. oftentimes the beginning of stories of transformation. Mm. And so that's very much what I see in Tears Joseph. of liminal space. Yes, exactly. And so so like so Joseph literally moves into a liminal space, you know, like he's holding court at the at the Pharaoh's court and the brothers come up and he leaves that holding court to go into this physically liminal space to enter this emotionally liminal space. And that's what allows him to go through and really process the pain and the the tragedy of what of like the violence he's experienced is at the hands of his brothers. And then he comes back and he tests them. And I love that whole story in general, in part because it's such a good model for when we're talking about forgiveness and atonement, you know, who gets to, to control the process. Like the, Joseph from step one to the end is, is the person who controls when and if he forgives his brothers. Mm-hmm. But it's the crying that sort of invites that and makes that even possible. And then they go back and they get Benjamin, they come back and he you know, tests them again. And again, he leaves the room and cries privately in this, this side chamber before he comes back and reveals himself. And so you have these two crying episodes that sort of bookend this, 
this process of self-revelation when he again, you know, comes out and shows himself and reveals himself to his brother. Mm. Um, and from a queer theology place, I, I really love, you know, the the trans readings of that story that like Jay Mays and other folks will will tell about, you know, Joseph wanting a princess dress. And, jo and I, I, I really can't see the story any other way now. And so when I think about, you know, the, the violence that, you know, trans youth are experiencing right now, and I see this this story in the Bible of somebody who decides to come out on their own terms, and tears are what water that process. Mm. You know, that's just a really, really powerful and poignant moment for me that mm -hmm. I hold on to when I'm crying, when I feel like I, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I think about Joseph crying in that, that side room before he makes the choice to, to reveal himself and, and mm -hmm. do something brave. Mm-hmm. Well, we have those stories, and then we also even have literal books like Lamentation and <laughs> you know the Psalms of Lament, even yeah. in the Book of Psalms. I mean, th those books about literal lamenting, right? I would imagine crying is a central process yeah. to even those books. Yeah, my you know my heart cries out to the Lord. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, and talk about a a scripture that I have sat with a lot, having moved through my own church burning down you know the opening words of lamentation you know how how desolate lies the city that was once so full of people like those are the words that go through my mind every time i pass the shell of our our old church and it's been that's been a really interesting to sort of take it out of the bible and into watching a community live a kind of exile experience that is so resonant with the exile that we read about in Lamentations, the kind of exile that provokes some of those psalms of lament. I've like watched this congregation move through, particularly, you know, one of the things about Middle, it, it's a deeply queer place. And a lot of people find Middle because they've been thrown out of other houses of worship. You know, they grew up in evangelical spaces, they grew up in other sort of toxic parts of Christianity, and they were told you don't belong, there's no place for you here. And so they found Middle as, as a home and the first place, you know, they were they were really told God loves you. And then those same people, many of whom had finally had found this home, this temple, this place to be, this place to belong, then lost that home again. And that's so incredibly heartbreaking and tragic. Mm -hmm. And having, you know, cried with members of the church and having worship services in the street in front of the ashes of our building, I can't read those you know, texts of exile, those texts of, you know, the destruction of the temple, those took on a whole different kind of embodied dimension than when I read about them in seminary before I've had this experience. Right. You might know that uh, I'm into process theology. Certainly my listeners know that I'm into process theology. I do. And Thomas Aquinas was famous for saying that God is the unmoved mover. Uh, and, but process theologians have twisted that a little bit and have said that God is the most moved mover. So what are your thoughts about a God who is, in a, in a sense, probably outcrying us? God could cry more than we could even. Uh, but what are your thoughts about a, a God who can outcry us because God is the most affected by what we feel and experience in the world because God is the most moved mover? What are your thoughts about that? There's a, a, the text in Revelation that I really struggled with for a while about, you know, that God will wipe every tear from the eyes. And I remember somebody on Twitter pointing out and saying, well, that, that doesn't mean that in that 
eschatological future that people aren't crying. It just means that God is God is crying with them and 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 holding the tears that fall. And I think that you know when it comes to a, to a God who is who is who's dynamic, who is in process, who is changing as we are changed. Yeah, that that weeping that God experiences in suffering, the sort of the the God of who suffers with us, not the traditional sort of you know. That's process has been really you know helpful in, in my own understanding of how to reconcile theodicy of how to mm-hmm. understand why would why would we suffer this way if God does not want us to suffer this way that knowledge that God is suffering with us mm-hmm. that God is weeping beside us is an incredible source of comfort and letting go of some of that you know omnipotence of God in exchange for truly believing and being able to believe in a visceral emotional way that when I am broken and weeping that God is weeping next to me. Because God isn't able to just wave a magic wand and make it better. That, mm. to me, is a much more personal relationship with God than you know I ever had when I when I sort of clung on to more traditional formulations. Like I think that that's one of the sort of great ironies of evangelicals who will be say like, "Oh, you need to have a personal relationship with God," and then <laughs> define God in such a way that it becomes almost impossible to have a personal a relationship. Person- yes. Exactly. <laughs> it's like this like profound irony. Like whereas, you know, actually that God, that process God, that God who is changing with us, that God who is suffering beside us, that's a God that I can actually have a relationship with. Mm-hmm. It's pretty tough to have a relationship with somebody who isn't changed and moved by you. <laughs> right? Really yeah. difficult. So it's hard to believe that God is the one exception to that. <laughs> the hell? Yeah. And I mean, and I think, you know looping into sort of christian ideas of of masculinity you know traditional you know more more toxic christian ideals of masculinity and i think a lot of that you know then you know if, if god is the you know the, the husband of the the church or you know and then the you know the man is the like the, we, we we tumble on down there it causes a lot of men to believe that like the only way to do that is to be unmoved to be the unmoved mm. mover you know what i mean I, I think that that is is a model by which a lot of men have st- structured themselves which actually prevents real relationship and why so many people have really hard time having real relationships with their fathers mm-hmm. because all of a sudden you're trying to have a relationship with this this force that seems like a constant presence but never actually moves and doesn't actually meet you at all like along the way yes. i don't think it's that that's like a, you know a, a coincidence i think it's very much a a causal effect of you know models of theology that portray God in a particular kind of unchanging way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the beginning, you talked about you had this experience as a boy where somebody said that crying is gay, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Yep. And the funny thing, though, is at the end of the book, you have a chapter titled The, Ar- the Queer Art of Crying. So you basically <laughs> you're just saying that crying is queer. So totally. I'm just curious, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> you're thinking of it in a very different way. But yeah, I'm curious. How, how is it that crying is queer? Yeah. That was one of my favorite chapters to write, um, and part of it was because I got to do a lot of interviews with folks who were involved in ACT UP. That period, for some personal reasons that I won't go into because we don't have the time, is something that that nestles very close to my heart. But listening to folks talk about what it meant to have to put their friends in body bags because the government wouldn't touch them, mm. and weeping and then transforming that weeping into weeping that was also rage, into weeping that was also grief, into pouring folks' ashes out on the White House lawn, into carrying people in caskets, and watching the police 
tear the caskets out of their hands and drop their friends on the ground. Like that kind of incredible pain that so many folks, like queer folks in the generation preceding me experienced is a model for crying that I think we would learn greatly as a culture by digging into. I think that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to tell those stories is because when I was looking at the third the third chunk of my book is, okay, if you could get rid of all of those social forces that keep people from weeping openly, what would a culture that really embraces open weeping look like? Mm. And queer communities are one of the places where I see that radical authenticity, that embodiment, that willing to be a full person, even in the middle of systems that are trying to break you. Mm-hmm. That duality of wholeness and brokenness, that for me is a deeply queer place. I mm-hmm. think a lot about um, The Queer Art of Failure. It's one of my favorite little queer books by Jack Halbertstam, in which uh, Jack writes about how one of the defining features of queerness is an unwillingness or inability to succeed by traditional you know, so- social markers of success. That if what it means to live a successful life by heteronormative standards is not available to you, well, then what can you, what, what beauty and love and grace can you find in failure? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that crying, I know that crying has been such an, a core feature of my own queer relationships, of the communities that I'm in, whether that's weeping in ecstatic dance, whether that's weeping in moments of you know tragedy after the Pulse shooting or after the shooting in Colorado, whether that is just being with friends in moments of their own tenderness and grief. That willingness to sort of, because I've let go of some of those things that used to hold me back about the the fear of crying being gay, and have now, Mm -hmm. you know, joyfully entered queer communities, it becomes a real freedom to just say, no, I'm I'm going to radically affirm all of the things that I'm feeling. Mm. And I, I think that that gift is something that queer communities have to offer a broader culture if we would only accept it. Mm -hmm. I love that. You've already started to touch on this a little bit, but how do you think the world would change if we all, especially straight white men, felt Mm -hmm. the permission to cry more? What's the kind of world do you think would exist if that was a reality? Well, I think one of the the things we would see is just is less interpersonal violence of Mm. whether that's, you know, the emotional violence of all kinds of caustic words or the very physical violence that so many people and act against their neighbors. Mm-hmm. I think that the more we are in tune with the pain that other people are experiencing, the less we are likely to be causers of that pain. Again, if, if one of the reasons why those social forces try to extinguish tears is to create people who are capable of causing harm without experiencing that kind of cognitive dissonance, by unwinding that and by retraining ourselves to feel by rewiring our emotionality so that we feel deeply, hopefully it becomes a uh, a way to avoid enacting that kind of harm against others. Um, I tell a story in my own, like uh, I tell a story from my own family in the book, where I was at my my family like a number of generations ago used to run a sawmill up in upstate New York, and I was uh, going through the house. And we found a DVD 
of like an interview with a great great uncle of mine when he was like in his 90s and he grew up as like the youngest son of this family who owned the sawmill that like ran the entire town and in it he was talking about how his father told him never to go drinking in the local bar because you don't want to get too close to people who will one day work for you um which is uh a very like unintentionally revelatory thing it's like oh you you don't want to actually become close to somebody who you might have to harm is the subtext there um because that that it becomes harder to fire them it becomes harder to you know to do something interpersonally violent obviously probably hopefully not in a in a physical sense but certainly in a structural sense um and i think that you know if we start to to raise children who really feel the world deeply and don't stop it hopefully becomes an invitation to have a different kind of emotional relationship with one another a different kind of emotional relationship with uh you know the suffering that we see around us whether that's you know physically seeing or seeing something on the news and wanting to do something to change it the tagline of my podcast is ins- exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. How do you hope Crybaby inspires and liberates its readers? A lot of people have asked me, oh, so do you want people to cry more? And sure. Yeah. Like, I, I think on the whole, crying is a, is, a, is a good and healthy thing. And if more people were more open criers, that I think the world would probably be better. But that's actually not what I'm really hoping that most people get out of my book. If that happens, great. What I'm really hoping is that people will start to let go of some of the shame that they have around crying. I think so many of us grow up with all of this shame associated with crying. That you know, we we are open weepers because that's how all people start. And then at some point we realize, oh, the world will look at me in a particular kind of way if I cry. And we don't immediately stop crying. Because again, it's this deeply human thing that is just a, an emotional response to the world. And so then we have this whole period before we're able to learn how to not cry, where we have this shame associated with crying, where, oh, I'm trying to do this thing. I'm trying not to do this thing that is just a natural thing that my body does. And so now I feel all of this shame around crying. And then that gets stuck. And then what happens is I was at the process of doing all these interviews. I was talking to folks who are now in their 20s and 30s or 40s and 50s who can't cry and have all of this shame now in the opposite direction of, oh, I really wish I was more emotionally available. I wish I could cry. That's been like one of the number one things that people tell me when I tell them I'm writing a book on crying is, oh my God, I really can't cry and I wish I could. And they have all of this shame around, I'm not emotionally available. And so I really just want people, I want to invite people into a space where they can start to unpack and let go of some of that shame. Mm-hmm. The shame. That I feel like I'm actually kept... in the same space like that where I feel like the, the swelling up that happens when you cry, but for whatever reason, it doesn't end up with tears coming out of my eyes, which I, I find that always really interesting. Like I feel just as emotional and I feel yeah. that like bodily tightening or swelling up that you feel when you start to cry. But for whatever reason, tears aren't coming out of my eyes. I find that really interesting. And does, when you have that experience, do you feel like you, you wish you could? Or do you feel like there's... Like sure. Like, I, of... I mean, yeah, it would, it would be nice. Mostly because, you know, it, it feels like it takes longer for that, that tension to dissipate. When you cry, yeah. though, it all starts coming out and you feel that tension, right? Like you were talking about before some of the research around the that crying is like this kind of stress relief Cathartic, it would be yeah. nice to get some of that relief out a little bit faster than having to like hold that in and somehow it dissipate uh, without crying 
so yeah, I just really want people to inv- to invite people into that space where they start really examining their relationship with crying, whether they're you know frequent criers who have you know a sense that oh maybe I shouldn't be crying as much as I do, whether they're people who you know haven't cried in years and have this sense of oh I wish I could cry but I don't, or if they you know are are people who you know sometimes cry but feel like maybe it would be more cathartic if they were able to uh, in those moments where they feel sort of coming up, but there's something stuck there. I want you to look into that. What's that stuck place? I'm trying to invite people into by examining some of the different social dimensions around crying, hopefully bringing out some bits that people haven't thought about as a way for them to start digging into their own stories and going, oh, maybe that's a piece of why I feel this particular thing in my body. Mm-hmm. Last question, Benjamin, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Sure. So you can find me uh, at FaithfullyBP on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can buy Crybaby wherever books are sold. It's uh, my little gift to the world. and I really, really hope you read it and enjoy it. Uh, I, if you write to me, I promise you I will respond. I love talking to people about the book. Yeah, go, go find it in the world. You can find uh, me at Middle Church as well. We're middlechurch.org and at Middle Church and all the places. Uh, it's a beautiful, wonderful, queer, anti-racist community of artists and believers from agnostics and atheists all the way to Christians of all stripes uh, and Jews and Muslims and all sorts of other folks who find their way into our community. So if you're, and for you're folks looking who for, don't live in New York City. Yeah, we have members in 48 plus states and 22 countries now. It's, it's a wild and crazy little movement. Uh, and so there's definitely a place for you inside of it. Love it. Love it. Well, Benjamin, I love the book. Uh, I wasn't really sure what to expect about a book about crying, but it is unbelievable. Some of the things that you pull out and I just really, really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for writing it. Thanks, Mason. Thanks so much for having me on the show. If you'd like to connect with Benjamin and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.